Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin in prayer, okay? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to review some of the propositions in section seven that I was forced to go over with. It could go over a bit too rapidly last time. These are errors regarding natural and Christian morality. Number 56 is a condemnation of the claim, the laws of morality have no need of divine sanction, nor is it all necessary for human laws to conform to natural law or receive from God the power to oblige. Okay? Now, this is a delicate matter. On the one hand, I do maintain that natural law morality is conceptually independent of the will or sanction of God. In other words, what makes a thing moral or immoral in natural law is not divine commandment. You can't base morality on commandments, even God's. Okay. Why not? Because commandments have no truth value. If you have enough authority to issue one, they have to be obeyed. But when the authority of the command issuer is in question, you better have another basis on which to defend the norms or commands. So conceptually, I admit that saying that something is right or wrong, moral or immoral, does not require understanding that God demanded this or sanctions the opposite. doesn't. However, Historically, all attempts to maintain a socially successful moral system have failed without the sanction of religion. Okay? Name me a great civilization that had anything like a substantive moral code to inculcate in its citizens that didn't insist that the gods were in some way um the authorities behind the morality even the pagans would have divinities who had something to do with the enforcement of uh of justice laws against murder and so on every successful system of morality has required a religious sanction because morality without religion has no teeth i'm sorry but that's how a recalcitrant the human heart is, okay? Tell me something is right. Yeah. But nobody's going to bite me if I don't do it. Ah. The recalcitrant human heart requires that a socially successful system of morality have a divine sanction added to it. And, of course, we had that during all of the centuries of Christendom. 57 says philosophical and moral science, like the civil laws, can and should be withdrawn from divine and ecclesiastical authority. Well, we have tried separating philosophical and moral science from religious authority. The experiment began in the 18th century with the Enlightenment, with the new philosophies and the new systems of morality. And the result was a very quick decline. Descartes, 
that wonderful optimist, thought that he had discovered the touchstone of certitude. And anybody who followed his way of thinking would easily achieve certitude about all matters of philosophy and morals and so on and so on. He couldn't have been more wrong. Descartes had almost no disciples. His successors quickly found holes in his system. Today, I don't know a single Cartesian. I used to criticize the the institution where I was teaching for including Descartes in one of their philosophy classes. I said, why bother to teach someone whom nobody believes in anymore? Okay. That's as dumb as teaching Nietzsche. But anyway, one should recognize, says number 58, no forces but those resident in matter. Hmm. And every system of morals, all upright conduct, should consist in accumulating and augmenting augmenting material riches of all kinds and uh, giving oneself up to pleasures. Uh, (laughs) This is, um, of course, it's materialism. And out of materialism grew a thesis about morality. You see it better if you look at Proposition 59. Right consists in material fact. All the duties of men are words devoid of meaning. All human deeds have the force of rightness. Now then, perhaps you have heard of the so-called fact-value dichotomy. There are facts and then there are values. A.J. Eyre, Alfred Jules Eyre, made a great name for himself in Oxford in the 1930s by publishing a book called Language, Truth, and Logic, in which he maintained that there is no matter of fact at stake in morality. Moral claims have no truth to them. And when the question came, well, but but Alfred, what does it mean then to say that something is right? And Alfred says, it's an expression of approval. It's like, say, helping old ladies across the street, yay! And saying that something is wrong is a sign of disapproval, like murdering your mother, boo, yuck. In other words, moral norms are nothing but expressions of taste, said Ayer, because he couldn't see that there was any truth to them because he had truth totally tethered to matters of material fact. Okay. Again, um, I don't like to dwell on this because nobody follows Ayer's philosophy anymore. You wouldn't know that. If you walked into the average public school and were told you have to keep your values out of this because we deal with facts in here. But no serious philosopher accepts the work of A.J. Ayer anymore. It's been demolished, including his claims about the truth valuelessness of morality. All right. Look at number 60. Authority is nothing but the sum of majority numbers and material forces. Karl Marx might have said that, right? Morality, I mean, authority is a matter of force. If you have the force, what you say gets to be correct. And as you all know, I hope that claim, the strong man makes the rules, right? was refuted in the first book of the Republic. That's a while ago. That argument was shredded by Plato. Okay, here's another goodie. Number 60. No, 61. If an unjust deed turns out well, it ceases to offend against the canons of rightness. Your translation may have it a little bit differently, but what it means is success 
determines right and wrong. Okay. What succeeds is right. Now then, the church is being plagued to this very day by a moral system, so-called, which in fact says this. This moral system is called proportionalism or consequentialism. The idea is that you're supposed to determine what to do by considering all the possible consequences of your options. And the option that has the best overall package of consequences, in other words, the one that will lead to the best success, is the one that's right. (laughs) It's a horrendous system. I used to teach moral theology at the institution where I was once employed. And I went through these moral systems, A.J. Ayers, moral nihilism, proportionalism, relativism of all kinds. And uh, I just had great fun tearing that stuff up. We don't have fun for time for it tonight, but it, it would be fun. And uh, I just called your attention to proposition number 61. Now, 62 is very different. One should preach and practice the principle of non-intervention. What in the world does that mean? I think the source of this idea was John Stuart Mill. Mill is famous for his little book on liberty, in which he maintained that you cannot rightly prohibit or prevent anyone from doing anything that doesn't hurt somebody else. Okay. So, yeah, the law can detain a thief because that hurts the victim. You can detain the murderer because that hurts the victim. But uh, anything that doesn't hurt somebody else, people have a right to do. So, in John Stuart Mill's world, there's absolutely no room for anti-drug enforcement. Okay. You want to fry your brains on meth? Doesn't hurt anybody but you. So that's fine. You can do it. This is a kind of permissivism, which uh, many libertarians, unfortunately, believe in, but they shouldn't believe in it. They should read the critiques of John Stuart Mill's little book on liberty. And they might get some better ideas about these matters. It is permitted to refuse obedience, says Proposition 63, to legitimate rulers and even to revolt against them. The key word in there is legitimate. You can certainly revolt according to the church's teaching. If you have a chance of success, you can certainly revolt against illegitimate rulers. And a ruler loses legitimacy just in proportion as that ruler seeks to pursue the common good, the public common good, right? So legitimacy is not just a matter of, well, I got elected, he was sworn in. Uh, There are other ways to lose legitimacy. And when a ruler no longer has legitimacy, you may certainly defy that ruler, disobey his unjust laws, and so on and so on. But if it's a legitimate ruler, where do you get this right to revolt? After all, St. Paul said, the powers that be are ordained of God, and they do not bear the sword in vain, but to punish evildoers, right? Okay, I love number 64 because of its particular background. Let's read 64. The violation of an oath, no matter how sacred, plus shameful and criminal action opposed to the eternal law, no matter what it might be, should not be condemned, but rather is listed and worthy of high praise when it is inspired by love of one's country. (laughs) Okay, nobody says this anymore. Okay. Nowadays, if you defend anything your country does, you're accused of being a jingoist. The idea that patriotic acts cannot be wrong acts is completely extinct, I hope, in the real world. 
even today. But this proposition was advanced by the soldiers of the kingdom of Piedmont. Yes. In 1864, they staged an invasion of the Papal States. They didn't go all the way to Rome, but they ripped off a couple of provinces from the Pope. And they said, okay, we weren't supposed to do that. You're supposed to be sacred, inviolable sacred territory and, and so on. But we did it for the love of our country, La, La, La Italia. Yes. For Italy, we can do it. And they also used the claim, if an unjust deed turns out well, it ceases to offend the canons of right. As See, our, our invasion was victorious. Therefore, it has to have been right. Okay. This is the kind of thing you could expect from 19th century anti-clerical liberal governments. All right, I move on now to section eight of the syllabus, the errors about Christian marriage. 65 is just um, a heresy. It says, one cannot establish by any reasonable argument that Christ raised marriage to the dignity of a sacrament. The church has solemnly taught otherwise. Proposition 65 is a heresy. Some people are not convinced by our arguments from scripture, but I am because it's perfectly clear that Christ was giving a very, very distinctive teaching about marriage. He was raising uh, the bond of marriage among his disciples to a level it had never previously enjoyed in Judaism or in Israel. Okay, number 66. The sacrament of marriage is just an accessory to the contract and can be separated from it. The sacrament itself consists merely in the nuptial blessing. <laughs> in other words, you sign up a clergyman, he comes and gives a nuptial blessing after your civil ceremony, and that's it. Okay. The blessing makes your union a sacrament. Absolutely not true. Okay. Again, heresy. As far as natural law is concerned, number 67, here we get to what interests people. As far as natural law is concerned, the marriage bond is not indissoluble. And in various cases, divorce property, so-called, can be sanctioned by the civil authority. One of the causes for which 19th century liberalism campaigned throughout Europe was divorce laws. It used to be said with tongue-in-cheek, the only bond the liberals really wanted to lift was the marriage bond, or relax, was the marriage bond. Yeah. Of course, we in our society take it for granted that divorce will be legal because we got that from English law. Thank you, Henry VIII. But in Catholic countries, this was quite a shock uh, when it was broadcast, and it was a shock in Ireland even into the 20th century. I remember my wife was over in Ireland in the 70s campaigning against the divorce law, which they brought in by referendum. First time we defeated it, second time we lost. They didn't invite my wife back, see? They didn't know what they were, how to fight this. But anyway, um, liberals are always bringing divorce laws to every place they win power. Okay, 68. Oh, this, this, this gets rich today. The church does not have the power to establish dirimant impediments in marriage. The power belongs rather to the secular authority by which existing impediments should be lifted. Do you all know what a dirimant impediment is? That's an impediment that would take away the, the the marriage bond, where there's a dirimant impediment, the couple cannot contract marriage. It prevents a bond from being formed. Okay. We're now told that the secular liberal state 
is going to be the sole authority deciding what impediments there can be. Church, go away. Don't try to say anything about this. All right. Well, we've been lucky for a long time in this country because we had a what I call a consensus Christianity in our culture. And everybody more or less understood what marriage was. It was between uh, a man and a woman. Remember that? (laughs) But imagine today, I want you to consider this possibility. Now that the liberals have moved on from uh, normal marital liberties, you might say, to fancy new ones, now, now that they've decided that you have, what should we say, a human right? To determine for yourself your gender without being tethered to any matter of biological fact. Okay? It doesn't matter what body parts you have. If you want to declare yourself a woman, you are a woman. It's your gender choice. And and likewise for the the, the men. And so, so everybody gets to decide his or her own gender biological fact be damned. Have I got that about right? Okay. Suppose a transgendered woman, uh, she was a man, let's call her a T woman, decides to marry a transgendered man. Let's call him a T man because he's not a real man. See, Do you think any Catholic church is going to be willing to celebrate a marriage of that kind? Hey, it's between a man and a woman. A fake self-proclaimed man and a fake self-proclaimed woman. Eh? Do you think that's ever going to be permitted in canon law? Marriage between transgendered people of opposite transgendered option? I don't think so. That means that the state would acquire the authority to either force the church to recognize these unions or stop celebrating marriages at all. Hey, if your marriage discipline isn't going to respect basic human rights, you can't exercise that discipline. I don't have a hard time hearing it in our near future if certain tendencies continue. I wanted to say something else about this. Why is it so difficult? to get our fellow Americans to remember what they themselves used to believe about marriage. How did the campaign for gay marriage, of all things, succeed so quickly? And don't say because Justice Kennedy was on the Supreme Court and never got away with it. It's worse than that. We used to have a strong popular consensus in this country against same-sex marriages. That consensus was eaten away by something or other. And I think it's important to understand what the average American simply don't doesn't understand what marriage is anymore because they don't understand that marriage is, first of all, a social arrangement about the begetting of legitimate children. Okay. A marriage contract is not a contract for legal orgasms. It's about begetting children who can be heirs to your property, okay, legitimate children. Once people lose that, you know, people, oh, well, marriage is just about, you know, you get married so you can have sex. Well, you want to have sex with somebody that I wouldn't particularly want to have sex with. But that, that's your business. And as long as you don't come in my house and bother me, and you're, you're all right. Anything you want to marry is all right. So it's, it has become very difficult to persuade people about the right norms for marriage because they have lost the connection between marriage and procreation. Right? Well, this is central to the church's teaching. We have always insisted on it. And we're not about to change our minds about that, because after all, it's in the Bible. Okay, I am going to skip now to section nine. 
beginning with number 75. These are errors on the civil principality of the Roman pontiff. In plainer language, these are errors about the papal state. You will recall that in 1865, when this document was issued, the papal state still stretched across the whole middle of Italy. It was a band of papal territory that stood between North Italy being unified by Piedmont or else occupied by, by Austria and Southern Italy, which at one point was a monarchy, the kingdom of the two Sicilies, they called it. Well, needless to say, people who thought that Italy desperately needed to be unified wanted the papal state to be gone so that they could have a continuous territory from the Alps down to Sicily. And so they not only fought against it eventually and won, but unleashed a campaign of propaganda against it. Error 75 says, the Catholic Church's children dispute among themselves whether the Pope's temporal rulership is compatible with his spiritual power. That's absolutely false. They do not dispute about that. The Catholic Church's children admit that the Pope has by right and deserves a temporal sovereignty of his own. Does it have to stretch all the way across the middle of Italy? No. Is the principle intact if it's reduced to a part of the city of Rome? Well, yeah. Personally, I would like the papal state to be a great deal larger, but that's all right. As long as the Pope is not under a conflicting temporal sovereign. As long as he's not the subject of a king or an emperor or a dictator, I'm content. That's what we fight for. And the children of the church do not dispute that. 76, abrogation of civil sovereignty, which the Holy See has, would advance, even greatly advance, the church's freedom and well-being. Okay, try singing that song in Constantinople. There used to be a major prelate there in control of about half the church. The Eastern Patriarch of Constantinople, he thought he was more uh, a greater power than he was, but never mind that. He had his problems continually with the Byzantine emperor. The emperor wanted a divorce, and the patriarch wouldn't give him one, off with the patriarch's head. The emperor wanted some doctrine taught, and the patriarch bought off with the patriarch's head. So it was bad news, the fight between church and state in Byzantium. But then, 1492, was it? 1452, 1452, the Turks replaced the Byzantine Empire. And the Eastern pellets ever since have been under the civil jurisdiction of Muslim rulers. It's lucky any Christianity survives at all in that part of the world. So the Holy See will not be advanced. The church's freedom and well-being will not be advanced if she has no toehold at all on political sovereignty. NB, says the text, besides the errors explicitly noted here, those two, many other errors are implicitly condemned by the doctrine expounded and maintained by, about the Roman pontiff's civil principality, a doctrine which all Catholics must profess firmly. Okay, so this is a good way to test the orthodoxy. Oh, I'm a bad one. A good way to test the orthodoxy of your pastor. Father, do you approve of the papal states? Do you think that should be part of it? <laughs> if he says, I don't approve, yes, it should be part of it. Leave the guy's a heretic. Just that simple. Now, I come to the final little portion of this document, the most famous, or I suppose the word is infamous, portion 
of this document. The errors dealing with modern liberalism. Remember, this is modern as of 1864, 1865. Number 77 says, in our time, it is no longer expedient for the Catholic religion to be considered the sole religion of the state to the exclusion of all other forms of worship. In our time, it's no longer expedient for the Catholic religion to be the sole religion of the state. Why not? If it's expedient for the state to acknowledge any religion, why shouldn't it be the true one? Oh, but what about religious liberty? I'm saying nothing against religious liberty, and neither does this proposition. You want to belong to another church and you want the freedom to practice the religion they teach in that church? Fine. Nothing in this proposition condemns that. In other words, having a religion of the state does not conflict with the religious liberty of people who don't belong to the official religion of the state. Now, I know everybody thinks otherwise because people have the Catholic doctrine mixed up with the conduct of that jerk, capital J-E-R-K, Louis XIV, okay? Louis XIV was secretly married to a gal named Madame de Maintenon, little miss right now. Louis XIV was secretly married to her. And outside of the marriage bed, she was very, very pious indeed. In fact, in the marriage bed, because she would whisper every night in Louis's ear, revoke the edict of Nantes, revoke the edict of Nantes. What was that? The edict of Nantes was a royal decree of toleration towards the Calvinists in France. Remember, Calvin had been a Frenchman. There were large Calvinist denominations in France at one time. And um, there had been civil wars, indeed, between Catholic princes and Protestant princes to control the throne of France. Okay. Well, the religious wars were brought to an end by the Edict of Nantes, N-A-N-T-E-S, in which the church proclaimed, if you will, religious tolerance towards the Calvinists, their institutions, their churches, their schools, and so on. Well, Madame de Maintenon thought that that was a scandal. The great Catholic sovereign like you, Louis, the king of the church's eldest daughter, you can't put up with that heresy in your backyard. Louis, revoke that edict. Well, I'm sorry. There are people who admire Louis XIV. I, 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 admire, I admire Versailles, don't get me wrong. I'd like to live in Versailles, but I don't admire Louis XIV. He listened to this nonsense, revoked the Edict of Nantes, and quickly told the Protestants of France that they would no longer be able to educate their children in their own schools. Their children would have to go to Catholic schools. They could no longer have their own institutions. They might be able to pray quietly in their own chapels, but that would be it, okay? Needless to say, people put up a fight. You have heard of the Huguenots. These were the French Protestants who fled France at the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Somehow, they didn't want to surrender their natural law right to instruct their children in what they believed. I don't blame them for that. So they got to H out of France. H, in this case, being Holland. They fled to Holland. They fled to England. They fled to Germany and spread everywhere the horror story of religious intolerance in France. So the Catholic Church's reputation for intolerance is, in fact, an artifact of Louis XIV, and I resent that. It could be perfectly expedient for the true religion to be the religion of state 
so long as other religious bodies are tolerated in accord with Vatican II. Okay? I do not see a conflict on this point between Vatican II and the syllabus. And you know why I don't see a conflict? Because John Courtney Murray told me there wasn't any conflict. John Courtney Murray was the primary draftsman of the uh, Declaration of Religious Liberty of Vatican II. And he says in so many words in his own footnotes to the Abbott translation of the document that nothing in the Declaration on Religious Liberty touches on the subject of a state religion. Nothing conflicts with a confessional state. That's what you want. You may have it. And boy, would it have advantages. Okay, now, somewhat harder proposition number 78. It is also praiseworthy that in certain Catholic countries, the law has provided that foreigners who immigrate there should enjoy the public exercise of their own forms of worship. Okay, that's from the allocution Acerbissimum of 1852, and the allocution Numquam Fore of 1856, it was about a situation that developed in the New World, in a country uh, recently liberated from Spain that was then called New Granada. Like all of the South American countries, or Central American countries, the initial liberation government was a highly um, anti-clerical government. And they decided that they could encourage the immigration of foreigners to their country by assuring them by law that their religious practices would be tolerated. Okay. The condemnation is that this arrangement is praiseworthy. Okay. Don't forget the beginning of the sentence. The Pope's saying that is not praiseworthy. That was an ad hoc arrangement dreamed up by the authorities in New Granada. The ad hoc arrangement could be perfectly tolerable, but don't think you can make a praiseworthy norm out of it. We, we don't see the danger that 19th century European liberalism was running by proclaiming its doctrine of religious freedom, because we think of our own country's practice of religious freedom, under which we have been comfortable enough, and we, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't see the, the problem. This is because we have been incredibly blessed in our history by having outfits, there were at least other forms of Christianity or Judaism calling for religious liberty. Okay. We didn't used to have the problem of mosques demanding religious liberty. You give religious liberty to Islam, and the next thing you know, you've got people, mullahs and whatnot, running all over the country proclaiming the superiority of Sharia law. And then, first thing you know, you've got to defend your right to have a civil constitution at all. Because Islam has no distinction between church and state, or I should say church, or I should say mosque and state. The distinction is repudiated. Not just the independent, the distinction is repudiated. Okay? And um, it won't be long until we have a religious sect which declares the infanticide of newborns to be of religious duty in their church. If the newborn uh, doesn't meet certain, I don't know, standards of looks or ethnicity or purity or doesn't seem to have the right karma, eh, they should be put to death. Oh, probably. Because it's our religion. Okay? We are just lucky that we haven't had to deal with too many slimy outfits like that. 
but our luck is running out. We've already got Islam running around demanding the level of religious liberty we give to other religions, not bothering to tell us that Islam isn't like other religions. Uh-uh, not much at all. Number 79, it is false to say that civil liberty for all forms of worship and full empowerment granted to all to proclaim all their thoughts and opinions openly and publicly is false to proclaim that that leads peoples towards corruption of minds and morals and the spread of the plague of indifference. Okay. In other words, the claim is that an absolutely unfettered freedom of all forms of worship and speech and proselytism, absolute freedom of all, absolutely unfettered freedom of all that, will not lead towards the corruption of minds and morals and won't spread the plague of indifferentism. Pius IX says it darn well will. Okay, it will. Liberalism leads people to skepticism and corruption. The Pope forbids one to hold the contrary. So does common sense, says a certain hero of mine, Charles Moros. But anyway, so does common sense. Do we have in this country the kind of unfettered freedom, civil liberty for all forms of worship and proclamation of thought and opinion that proposition number 75, 79 says will lead to corruption. No, we don't. There are lots of things you cannot say in the United States using your free speech right. Okay. Just as you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. So also you can't market fake drugs. Hmm? There are all kinds of restrictions on speech and propaganda and proselytism in American law. And I'm generally in favor of most of them. There are some regulations here and there I could see relaxed, but I don't want to abolish the Food and Drug Administration. I'd like them to do their work a little faster, but I don't want to abolish it. I don't want to see liable laws abolished. Okay, because if everybody has a right to say whatever they think on any subject at any time, then what they say can't be, I, I can't stop them from, I, I, can't, I can't accuse them of libeling me because libel wouldn't be wrong. They have this right to say, where were the wall? So in any sensible country, including pretty liberal ones like the United States, we didn't used to be so liberal as we are now, but. In any half-decent country, there are laws against spreading falsehoods, false propagandas, and so on. So I have no problem with proposition number 79. And that brings me to the last one of all, the famous, the hated, the loathed number 80. It says the Roman pontiff can and should reconcile himself and come to terms with progress, liberalism, and modern civilization. Okay. I just wish, because I'm such a thoroughgoing, pluperfect reactionary, I just wish I could leave that number 80 without any further exegesis or comment or historical context. Whatever you call progress, I'm it. Whatever you call him, I had. The Pope didn't mean that. In fact, he gave us a very good indication of exactly what he did mean. He pronounced what is now Proposition Number Eighty in an allocution called "Yam Durum Chernimus," which means we've been seeing for a long time, and the circumstances were modern arrangements, which were highly touted in those days and which he had been uh, condemning. And then he said, quote, 
if in the name of civilization, one must understand what has been invented to weaken and, so to speak, overthrow the church, never will the Holy See or the Roman Pontiff be able to rally to such a civilization. Amen to that. He's got it exactly right. All you have to do is put Proposition 80 in the context of this year's presidential primaries. Okay? Just listen to all the things which are now being proclaimed as human rights, unassailable rights, free medical care for everybody. It's a human right, isn't it? No, Bernie, it isn't. The human rights, says Bernie Sanders. What about the right to declare your own gender in complete contempt of your lower organs? What about your right to marry a person of the same sex? All of these things are being proclaimed these days as the hallmarks of our advanced modern American civilization. The Holy See cannot reconcile itself to any of those things. Okay? And when you look at the original context of number 80, it was very similar. Okay? I have said my little piece. And I am thanking you all very much for your attention. And I am open to your question. Dr. Marshner. Please, can you recommend some books with a critique of John Stuart Mill's philosophy? I'm blanking on her name right now. Irving Crystal's wife, she has made quite a study of 19th century uh, social and political thought. And she has a terrific book against John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. They're asking when your next book is coming out, Dr. Marshner. First of all, what books have you published that we can read? Well, I put out Defending the Faith, subtitle, an anti-modernist anthology. Catholic University of America Press. And uh, it's the best critique of modernism you'll ever need. Because I didn't write it. I just translated the guys who were there and had the number of the, the modernists very well. My next book was... Um, Pre-Modern Philosophy Defended. That was a translation of um, Joseph Kloitgen's book, Philosophie der Vorzeit, which was an important inspiration for Leo XIII to launch the uh, Thomistic Revival. And every liberal or modernist churchman in the second half of the 19th century hated that so I said, it's about time for that to be in English. So now it is. My next opus should be the first part of St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae, which I have put into English, new translation, with the commentaries of his great commentator, Cardinal Thomas Cajetan, Thomas Deville, known as Cajetan. No English translation of the Soma has ever included Cajetan's commentaries. But Leo XIII wanted those commentaries in there when he commissioned the definitive edition of Aquinas' works. And the commentaries are really, really good. Uh, deep. Uh, some of them uh, not for the some of them are strictly for the Papa Bears, let's put it that way, but it's great stuff. And um, I've translated the whole thing. Uh, and so volume one should be out within a year or so. And then volume two will take us, I mean, volume one will take us through the end of the treatise on the Trinity. And then volume two will take us to the end of the Prima Pars. And as to what I publish after that, hey, Guy's got to have some secrets, doesn't he? Okay. Yeah, listen, we're coming to a close here, Dr. Marshner. 
And uh, Jane Howley, who's a dear friend of the Institute, asks a question that I think is, uh, is a good closer here. And she says, Dr. Marshner, after all of the horrors we have heard that you, you show us, and in one place at one time, sort of, it's pretty depressing. So do you have any words of hope, please? And I'm going to add, uh, especially in light of the current situation in the hierarchy of the church. Oh, my goodness. I hope I can console anybody who's worried. Look, the Pope will still be the reigning head of the Catholic Church when the last liberal has been hanged in the guts of the last secularist. These people have no future. The Europe they created in the 19th century is dying in front of our very eyes. Demographically, it's dying. Civilizationally, it's dying. Does that mean Christendom is finished? Not unless you're like Hilaire Belloc, who had that crazy idea that Europe is the faith and the faith is Europe. No, it is. Hilaire, give me a break. Christendom will be reborn. Uh, maybe in the third world, maybe in the new world, I don't know. But the Church of Christ is a light that never goes out. So take light from the light that never fails. And take hope from the hope that will never disappoint. Dr. Marshner, on behalf of uh, the Institute of Catholic Culture, all of our participants and those many, many, many people that will be listening to this uh, series of talks over the coming years. I want to thank you because kind of a breath of fresh air and uh, appreciate your uh, honesty and forthright teaching uh, in a time when, uh, to be honest with you, there's a lot of confusion in the church. And I'm sure that a lot of what you talked about, especially the, regarding the papal states and the related topics, um, was kind of an um, eye-opener for people. So I do appreciate you coming and teaching with us and being such a good, good friend of the Institute. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.